morning, Presswater Church. My name is Robert Walter. Uh, so I've been honored with uh, the chance to do the, the uh, scripture reading this morning. So we're going to be in Exodus 32, Exodus chapter 32. I'll give you a minute to turn there now. So Exodus 32, we're starting in verse 15 and reading through 35. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his, and his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. All right. Thanks, Robert. What a passage. You guys ready for that one? All right. Well, good morning. 
Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I also want to say um, to those of you who don't have your fathers any longer, like my family, or had a tough relationship with your father, or you've tried to be a father and it hasn't happened for you yet, we also love you, and we're thinking of you, and we're praying for you. But we also want to celebrate the fathers in our room. They're a reflection of our Heavenly Father, which we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. So happy Father's Day to you. I'm glad, dads, that you chose to be here and not fishing or camping or whatever else on Father's Day. Um, I've always said in the past, Mother's Day tends to be a day that's pretty highly attended. And Father's Day seems to be a day that's not as highly attended. I'm just saying spiritual leaders of your home, right? So um, the fact that you're here today is awesome. I'm so glad that you're here today. My wife's like, did he just say that? I did. But anyway, um, so we're going to go ahead and jump right in today. If you haven't been with us, last week we dove into one of the more famous passages in Exodus in chapter 32. And so if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Exodus, right? No surprise. And we call it kingdom to kingdom because what this whole book is really about is being delivered from the kingdom of man, from the kingdom of flesh. In this case, the kingdom of slavery in Egypt to the kingdom of God. And that's what God does for us, right? Take us from this kingdom to his kingdom. And really, all for the glory of God, that's what this book is about. And so what we've seen so far in this book, very briefly, is God do miracle after miracle after miracle to free his people from slavery in Egypt, from the kingdom of man, the kingdom of Egypt, to, into his kingdom. And not only that, to bring them into his presence, right? All of this, all of his protection, all of him rescuing and delivering them has been about him them really learning what it means for him to be their God and for him to be their people. And so up to this point, he has brought, brought them to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where God's presence is literally dwelling. And they have been able to come before God's presence and see him in thunder and lightning and hear his voice and honestly be terrified by him because he's so holy and he's so powerful. And, and so he's really revealed himself a little bit at a time to his people. And so what has happened, and what happened last week, is Moses went up on that mountain for 40 days to be with God. And during those 40 days, God gave him the law, which is really the covenant that the people had made with God, to, to reveal to them how they can follow his law. And he gave them all the details about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is just the place on earth where God's presence will dwell with his people. And so Moses has been gone for a little over a month. Well, during that time, these people that have worshiped God and sang songs for him and seen him do all this, all these amazing things for him, abandoned him, right? They, they gave up their faith in him and they created a golden calf. And they worshiped that golden calf as if it was God. What, what they had really done is gone back when they lost, they felt like they lost Moses because they didn't know how long God, Moses was going to be gone. When he ends up being gone for five, six weeks, they go back to what they knew because this, this is how the rest of the world worships gods. This is how Egypt worshiped, at idols. This is how they worshiped other gods. So they went back to what they knew, what they were comfortable with, and they abandoned their faith in God, at least in part. So where we left it off last week is God tells Moses, listen, for their sin, for their idol worship, for them abandoning me, for their great sin, I'm going to destroy them all. But Moses once again intercedes for his people. Or as I said last week, he stood in the gap for his people. When they wouldn't do what they need to do, Moses said, I'll do it on their behalf. And he, he begs God, he prays to God and says, God, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your reputation in Egypt and throughout the rest of the world, please don't do this. And what does God do? As the word says, he relents, right? He relents from his great anger and says, I won't destroy all of them. And we don't really know exactly the number in Israel, but a lot of the, num the numbers that they estimate is two million. Right? There's up to two million people out in the desert with Moses. And so God says, I'm not going to destroy these two million people. 
But that, what that doesn't mean is that there won't be consequences for their action. There won't be consequences for their sins. And that's really where we're going to pick it up today. We start to see the consequences as Robert just read. We kind of got to see. And I'll be honest, man, this is a tough passage, right? Were there some of those things you were in there? You're like, oh, whoa, right, when, when he read it. And so this is a tough passage. But by, by the end of this, I, I hope that you'll see. Listen, I think that you're going to see that even in these tough things, God is doing these things out of love. Love for his people and even love for us. What I want us to see now is today is that God's holiness is serious. Like his holiness is a serious thing. God's judgment and wrath for sin and, and, and evil is incredibly serious. But in the end, the tough things, even the hard things that God does, is not just simply retribution for sin, but it is God loving us well. It's God more clearly showing us who he is and it's God drawing us to him. That's the point of all of this. Again, it's not simply retribution, it's God's love for his people. And through this, God is going to declare his glory to his people and to the rest of the world, and through this, people are going to be saved so they might be drawn into who he really is and worship him rightly. That's, what we, that's where we want to land today. This is actually going to land lovingly, whether you can see it right now or not in this passage. So with that, let's go ahead and jump back into it and, and just really see what God has for us today and how this, all this is really pointing to how much God loves us. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back into verse, or chapter 32, and let's start in verse 15, and let's read through verse 20. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. These tablets of the testimony, these are the Ten Commandments written on these two tablets. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Can you imagine having these, God's own handwriting on these tablets? Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Again, reminder, Moses was gone for 40 days, right? We saw that all the way back in Exodus 24. He took Joshua up there with him. Him and Joshua go up on the mountain, and then Moses goes into the presence of God, and he's there for 40 days as God is giving him the law. And as they come down the mountain, Joshua, who had been with him a ways off probably while he was up there in God's presence, he, he comes down. Joshua hears the, the, the clamor that's happening at the base of the mountain, and he says, man, there must be war. Now listen, this was a general of war. Joshua became a general of war. He knows the sound, sounds of what war sounds like, and the Israelites were so out of control that he thought war was going on. And so he comes, they're coming down the mountain, and Moses says, no, that's, that's not war, because God has already told Moses at the beginning of chapter 32 what's going on. Moses knows Exactly what's going on. He says they're singing, they're, they're basically partying down there. Now, I don't think we do this enough, right? I've been trying to do this through the series. I want you to try to actually picture this moment of Moses like, coming around the corner or coming around a rock or standing over the people as he comes down the, the mountain, like some, maybe something like this, and he sees all of the partying, the revelry, and everybody turns and they see Moses and they see the look of anger on his face. Can you imagine that moment? 
Because Moses has very much represented God and his power before them. Aaron, to a much lesser extent, his brother. But all the miracles have happened through Moses. He parted the Red Sea. He held up his hands when they were attacked by the other army. And, and it was, they felt like Moses was the one defending them through God. But Moses was defending them. They know that Moses has power through God, that he is like God to them. Can you imagine him walking around the corner or whatever and standing and looking over his people and them turning and seeing Moses standing there? Who? Maybe they ignored him, but I just imagine everybody was like, the partying stopped. Like, you know, like the, the scratch of the record. Right? Everybody stopped singing and playing there, whatever they're doing, looking. And Moses is standing there, and he has a look of what it says in the chapter, burning anger. Burning anger. Some people think that in this moment that Moses just lost control. Like his anger just got out of hand and he threw down the tablets, right? Because he, he was acting reckless in this moment. I don't think that's what's going on right now at all. Moses' anger was completely righteous and completely justified. You know, in Scripture, there is righteous anger. I think it's actually pretty rare. I think it's pretty rare that our, our anger, we react sinfully and, and in our flesh more often, but righteous anger is a real thing, and there is righteous anger in here. It is completely justified. God is angry. The people had agreed to follow God's covenant. Listen, they willingly agreed to follow God's covenant, and the Ten Commandments represent this covenant, and they have broken it, and it only took about a month, and they've broken it in radical ways. Not just kind of, right? They're not just some sins. I mean, they're breaking it in radical ways. So think about the power of this moment. Have you ever thought about this? Moses is hold, in his hands, he's holding the two most valuable things in the world. Can, can you even imagine if we could prove that we had something written by the hand of God, how much that would be worth? You couldn't even calculate the value of what that would be worth. And Moses is handing the most valuable thing in the world, not just because it's got his law on it, which is unbelievably valuable. We've never had the Ten Commandments before. God, he's bringing it to the people written by the hand of God. But the breaking of the covenant, again, which the Ten Commandments represented, was so hideous, was such an infraction, was so ugly in the sight of God that breaking these tablets might have been the only way for them to get it. Because, listen to this, the breaking of the tablets, you know what this represented? The breaking of their covenant. The Ten Commandments represented the covenant that they made with, and he broke them because they broke the covenant. They broke, in particular, the first two commandments, worship God alone and don't have any other idols. Really, the two commandments that inform every other commandment. Because they teach us how to interact with God, and he actually had, he broke them in front of us. Do you think this would have made an impression on them? Having the most valuable thing broken in front of them. Because you know what? The commandments and the tablets aren't the most valuable thing in reality. The most valuable thing is our relationship with God. The covenant they made with God, that God said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to protect you and bless you and be with you. And they had broken it. They had broken the most valuable thing. And Moses breaking these not only showed the seriousness of, only showed the seriousness of this to them, but what else did he do? He broke the tablets, but what else did he do? He took the golden calf that they had worshipped and he melted it down to ash. And then he spread it on their drinking water and they drank it. Do you know why they did that? Some people are doing this. I don't know either. We don't actually know for sure um, why they did this. But here's what most of the things that I read, because honestly, I didn't know. Um, most of the things that I read, and this is what really, in the end, this is what I think it was, is they spread it on the water so that people would drink it and they would pass it in their waste. 
to show what an abomination it was, to show how dirty, how filthy it was. If this is really what was going on here, do you think that might make the point to you about how God viewed this idol worship? It might put it rightly in their brains, how, how, how serious of an offense this was to God. So now Moses has gotten their attention, hopefully, breaking the Ten Commandments, letting them know they've broken the covenant, that God wanted to kill all of them. I'm sure he told them, God wanted to kill all of you. The only reason you're not all dead is because I interceded on your behalf. Man, you, they probably understand. He's, I think he's literally put the fear of God into them. But now that he's done that, he turns his attention to the person that was supposed to be protecting them against this madness in his absence, his brother Aaron. Look at verse 21. And we'll read through verse 24. 32, chapter 32, verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You notice how he didn't say my brother or Moses? He called him Lord in this moment. He's afraid. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Mo as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Come on, Aaron. This might be the most perfect example of how we as people, and even me at times, when I've been, when I've been giving into my sin, do not take responsibility of our actions before God. We may repent, but talk about not taking responsibility for your, your actions. Did you hear? Moses confronts him, and like, what in the world did they do that you would let this great sin come upon them? Why in the world? And does, does Aaron just apologize for a sin and own it? Is that what you read in the passage? No, he says, my Lord. I, I just love it that he said, my Lord. I mean, it's his brother, and he calls him Lord in this moment. It's, it's like he's just trying to get, show him extra respect just in case, right? He's like, you know the people. I mean, all they want is evil. They're set on evil all the time. You know how they are, and it's what they demanded. And listen, you weren't here. He has to bring up that point too. He said, they said that you weren't here, you weren't here, Moses, so what was I supposed to do? Maybe that's not exactly what he meant, but man, it sure feels like it, doesn't it? Moses, remember, you weren't here to lead them because it's your fault you're on the mountain with God, and he demanded you to be there, right? With God. And not only that, and so I took their rings. Yeah, I took the rings and I threw it into fire, but then just out popped this golden calf. Except for the fact that he forged it with his own tools. He did, you see how he communicates here? Do you know how many times I've been in conversations like this as a pastor? This might seem ridiculous, but I've been in conversations like this so many times as a pastor. Listen, I've, do, I've done and said things like this in my past when I was lost to my sin. Right? Kind of owning it, right? Kind of admitting my mistakes, but then saying, yeah, I, I did this thing, but here, let me, let me explain to you. You don't understand exactly what's happening. Okay, I, I, I did this thing. Yes, I did. But let me give you a little context so you understand why I broke this law. Man, if you, if you just put, like, listen, you don't understand. My situation is a little bit different. I and mean, this happened to me not very long ago. Yeah, I know I shouldn't be doing this, and I know this is sin, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm repenting of it, but, but let me explain my situation. It's different than other people's situation, even though Scripture is going to teach us there's nothing new under the sun. There's no sin that's new or different or special. We're just sinful. And we kind of own it, but a lot of times not really own it because we've always got good reasons why we made our mistake. And just instead of just fully owning that we have clearly violated God's laws, God's commandment, and honestly, most of the time what he has explicitly told us not to do. Anybody that thinks they're a good person, right? I don't want to go through this whole thing again, but a good person, 
Just lay your life against the Ten Commandments. That's it. No other laws, no other things. Just start with the first two, and you're not going to get very far in your life where you know you've broken God's law. Right? We can't even manage the first Ten Commandments, and we can't, so often can't even manage just to fully own our failure and our sin before God, even on the most simple things. And Aaron helped them, helped them directly violate the first two commandments in a detestable way to God. Have no other gods before me. Do not make any idols because I cannot be captured in an idol. I am the I am. And he helped them explicitly do both. You know what? I had a conversation, I think, with Aaron this week about Aaron. About how it's kind of weird that we don't really see the consequences that come, came to Aaron, do we? We don't really see what, how God held him responsible. If we, I'm sure that he did, because we see how God responds to this. But in the end, yes, Aaron was their leader. But God is going to hold us responsible. He's going to hold his people responsible for demanding this, for wanting this, and for walking in this. But listen, for a lot of them, at least, enthusiastically engaging in this. God's going to hold them accountable. And like the sin they committed, the consequences are dire. Even though he's not destroying everyone, the sins are still dire. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 through 29. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, meaning they are out of control, they are doing the wrong thing, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Right there, that word in the Hebrew, what that probably means is they were acting so shamefully that even their enemies were shaking their heads at the Israelites in this moment. Listen, this wasn't just them kind of worshiping the golden calf. This is probably some sort of depraved party that they lost control at. They went back to the old ways and were full in, even to the derision of their enemies. Verse 26, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Levi is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the tribe that Moses and Aaron are a part of. And so the, the tribe of Israel gathers around them. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from, the, from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Whoa. All right, we don't have to pretend that like, that's not a tough passage and that's not a tough thing to read, but I want you to stick with me on this, okay? I want you to stick with me. Do you remember... When God made the covenant with his people, and they agreed to that covenant, what he, what he said his people were supposed to represent to the world, what they were supposed to be. You remember? A holy nation and a kingdom of priests. That's who they're, they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be a people set apart. That's what a lot of these laws and these cultural rules are about, being different from the world, being a representation, an ambassador of who God is. And so this kind of adultery, this kind of disgrace to God's character, this kind of sin, considering who God is, cannot go unanswered. Like it cannot go 
unanswered. So, so Moses asks, who's still, still fully faithful to God? And the tribe of Levi gathers around him. Now, I don't, I, we don't really know. We don't have a context. I, I have to imagine that all the people of, of Levi, they're not all innocent in this, right? That some of them engaged in this. I don't know, right? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But I got to assume they're not all completely innocent because it seemed like people from all over Israel were engaging in this. Right, but them standing in this moment next to Moses is at least saying, we repent, we'll stand with God. Yes, we messed up, but we are with God, we are for God. Command us whatever you want us to do. And I don't know if Aaron was a part of this. If this was part of Aaron's repentance, gathering around Moses, I imagine it was that he came to Moses like some of the other ones shamefully and said, no, we are with God now. We were wrong, we're here, command us. So the people of their tribe, Levi, gather around and say so they stand with God. Then God says to them, go and kill those who have sinned against me. That's what he's saying here. Go and kill those who have sinned against me. Kill the idolaters. And when he talks about brothers and sons and neighbors here, I don't think he literally means go find your brother and kill him. He means go out and you find the ones that are guilty of this, that are still in the camp. And whether they're your brother or your son or your neighbor or your tribesman or whoever, you listen to me and you kill them for this sin. Whoever it might be. You gotta guess some of them lost some brothers or sons on that day. That's tough. And so it says on that day, 3,000 people were killed. And I don't wanna act like that's not a significant number. That's a lot of people that were killed that day. But Again, if you weigh it against what God said he was going to do at first, I'm going to kill all of them and start over with you, Moses, because they're a stiff-necked people that will not listen. 3,000 people compared to 2 million, even if it's like some other estimates closer to 100 to, 100 to 300,000, even if it's that lower number, 3,000 compared to everyone is a, is a very low number. It's a very low retribution for sin, the consequence for sin compared to what God initially threatened. So here's the thing. Um, if it was just 3,000, it couldn't have been every person that sinned. It seems to me, right, we, again, it doesn't say, but it seems to me this has got to have been the people that instigated this, the people that were leaders of this, but maybe more importantly, the people that still had idol idolatry in their heart, the people that weren't willing to fully repent and turn back to God. They had idolatry in their heart. These are the ones that were killed. And then at the end, Moses says to the Levites, because you have shown your dedication not to these idols and not even to the people, but to the Lord, to Yahweh, even in this really difficult thing, right? This is a difficult thing. You have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Do you know what it means to be ordained? We ordain pastors now, and it's kind of the same. It's a little bit different. Another word for ordained is to consecrate, to set apart as holy, if you don't know the story of where the rest of this goes with the sacrificial system and with the law, this is the tribe, the tribe of Levites. This is the tribe that will become God's priests, that, that will execute the sacrifices, the blood sacrifices from animals that will atone for the sins of Israel. These are going to be the priests of Israel. And so today, through the blood, through the blood of the people, this is the beginning of Israel starting to make atonement for, to God for their sins, which is a reflection of who they are going to be later. The, the tribe of Levi becoming the the priest of God starts today. In this passage, this is the beginning. By blood, they have begun, begun to make atonement for sin, which is how it is accomplished in the Old Testament and even now. It takes blood to atone for our sin. Now, 
I, I understand this, like, especially with our Western ideals, this, this kind of extreme action by God might seem unjustifiable, might seem just too hard to understand. And I, listen, I understand that reaction, but hear me, I want you to see that Moses, who doesn't have our Western ideals, did not hesitate, right? He knew, Moses knew what could happen if, if these people were allowed to spread their idolatry, were allowed to spread the cancer this idolatry, and it began to take root in the people's hearts, and it began to spread. And so as we've said, God is, is asking them to live radically different than the world does, to be ambassadors, to be set apart, to be holy, to be a reflection of him. So I want you to see what's going on here in this camp is nothing less than a war for their souls. This is a war for the soul of what it means to be later Christian, but this followers of God. This is the beginning you realize this? Yes, the promises started with Abraham. Of course they did. But this is the promise that was coming, that God would have a people for his own. This is where it starts. This is the beginning. Everything about what it means to worship God, to follow his holiness, and to be his people is being defined right now. And God is not, at the beginning, going to allow idolatry and this falsehood and this sin and this evil begin to take over his people at the beginning. This is about saving faith. This is about saving souls. And who God is and how we're supposed to worship is being rightly defined in this moment. Because getting this thing wrong, the result of that is an eternity in hell. And so God's going to make sure that they don't miss it. Everything is at stake here as God's people are actually becoming his people. And God is showing us very clearly how serious this is and what's at stake. Because if we kept reading through the rest of the Old Testament, I know some of you have, You've read the stories where the people aren't faithful to God, when they give over to idolatry, when God commands them, I need you to do this really hard thing, and they don't do it. How does it go for them? It goes really bad. In situations like this where they don't kill the people or do the things that God says to do, not only does it go bad for them, but it goes badly for them for generations and generations at times. So badly at times that the entire nation of Israel is led completely astray. To the point at one point where they lost the Old Testament, they lost the Old Covenant. They didn't know what it was anymore because they'd gotten so lost to their sin and idolatry that the King Josiah eventually finds in the Old Temple, finds the Word of God, finds the Old Testament, discovers it for the first time, and tears his clothes and freaks out because he's trying to be faithful to God. And he didn't even know the Old Covenant existed That's how lost they got. That's how far this thing went. That's where, listen, that's where our country seems to be going now, just forgetting who God is and who we're supposed to be. So this might seem harsh, but later when they don't listen, when they don't do the things God told them to do, it goes terribly. That's so much worse than this moment. And as flawed human beings who can't see the future, who can't see into people's hearts, of course we couldn't make a decision like this. Of course we couldn't. And even in the New Testament, God commands us not to ever make decisions like this. One of the commandments, do not commit murder. We don't get to decide things like this. But listen, God is not you. And God is not me. He is the I am. He sees all. He knows all. And he goes right into people's hearts. And he knows what the consequences are going to be if he doesn't step in. He knows what the consequences of this will be for generations if he doesn't step in. So as hard as it might be for some of us to wrap our minds around this, and hear me, I get it, this is actually the loving thing for God to do. This is loving. 
He's doing this because he loves his people. Scripture clearly teaches, I don't desire that any should perish, but all should come and know my name. God doesn't want them to perish. But he is the I am. He knows the consequences of letting this take root in his people's hearts. And there are people still around that are going to lead his people to rebellion, going to lead his people to destruction, are going to lead his people to hell. And so this is the loving thing for him to do for his nation, for his people, for the sake of his glory. And I'm going to say even, and for the sake of us, who are still reading this story three, 4,000 years later and feeling the impact of it. When we read that story, it's not supposed to feel good. It's making us like lean back and ask the question, why would God do this. And it's not because he's evil. And it's not because he doesn't care. We have Jesus Christ to prove to us once and for all just how much God loves us. So we have to ask, why would he do this? It's because he loves us. It's because he wants us to see. It's because he wants the world to see and know his glory because his glory leads to salvation. His glory leads to salvation. And by the end of this, what we're going to see as we keep reading, Israel is once, a, once again at least mostly free of idolatry and focused solely on Yahweh, on the God of the Bible. Church, I know. I know in the time of Christ, in this time of grace, in this time when our sins have been covered on the cross, and as Romans 8, 1 says, you, you, in Christ you are no longer condemned. Because of the gospel, you are no longer condemned. This might seem harsh, it seems harsh because Jesus paid the penalty. Man, they're, they're living out the actual penalty for their sin. And we don't have to experience the same kind of penalties because we have Jesus Christ. But how could we possibly, how could we possibly, church, understand the depth of our sin? How could we possibly understand the depth of God's holiness? How could we understand what Jesus actually had to do and take upon himself on that cross without first understanding just how ugly and evil sin is? We have to understand how awful it is before we understand how good God really is. Church, this is how we understand the seriousness of all this. We must not cast this, we, and I've heard people do this, we might not just cast it aside, oh, like, that's just the Old Testament, I'm a new covenant believer, or we must not like, communicate like somehow God's different in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Listen, it is not different. And God is not different. It's just now that we have the Savior of the world interceding on our behalf and taking all the penalty for us. But it is still just as serious today. It's just as serious. God takes this just as serious, seriously. The picture of just how serious this is to God becomes even more clear in our last section of Scripture today. Let's read it quickly in verse 30. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. That means go back up on the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to, to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague 
on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. You know, Moses probably knows God's holiness and the depth of betrayal that sin is better than almost anyone, maybe better than anyone who has ever lived other than Christ himself because of his close, intimate relationship with God, because his relationship with God is so personal in a way that almost nobody else experienced, particularly in the Old Testament. So Moses knows this isn't over. He knows it's not over, even though that hard thing just happened. So he goes up on the mountain and once again intercedes on behalf of the people. Once again, people who don't deserve it, right? He stands in the gap for them, which is what God is calling us to do. Whether they deserve it or not, intercede on people's behalf, even if they can't see their own sin. And he asked God to forgive them. Now, it, it does say something interesting in verse 32. Moses says, forgive their sin, but if you won't, please blot me out of the book that you have written. When, it, when it's talking about here, it's talking about the book of life. That's referred to in Revelation, other places in Scripture, the book of life, the book that, with the names of those who are truly God's children, the names of the people who will be in heaven. So Moses is basically saying, if, if, you, if you can't forgive them, then I want to go down with the ship with them. And, and maybe in some ways this is kind of honorable. Moses is offering to go down with the ship, basically. He's, he is their leader after all. If you can't forgive them, I'll go down with them. And, but noble or not, maybe it was noble, maybe it wasn't. But God makes a strong, a strong point to him, and he makes a strong point to us. In verse 34, God basically says, no, Moses, I decide who is I decide who is saved, and I decide who is in my book. You don't get to decide who's in my book. You don't decide who's going to get saved. As it's going to say in the couple chapters we're about to read next, next couple weeks, I have mercy on who I decide to have mercy. Moses doesn't get to decide this. God gets to decide this. And who does God say is going to be blot out of, blot it, blotted out of his book? Did you see it? Those who have sinned against me. And this is not Moses' sin, so he's making a point. But there's a, there's a greater point here. In the end, who has sinned? Who sinned? Everyone. Right? All of us. And so this might just seem like this quick moment in the Bible where Moses is having another conversation with God, something we just kind of pass over. But what just happened in this moment is a very big deal. God is once again establishing the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin that I think we make lightly of now, right? But it is reiterated over and over again and reiterated in the New Testament in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is that you have no place in heaven with God. It's clearly establishing here our need to be saved. Because who's blotted out of the book? Those who have sinned. Well, we've all sinned. So something has to happen. Someone has to intervene. Or we're not going to be in heaven with God. We need God to intervene on our behalf himself. This is a very subtle thing pointing forward to our need of a Messiah. Because even in the Old Testament, when it starts predicting about the, uh, the Messiah, prophecy about the Messiah, it all, it's so often it points back to this moment in Exodus. It points back to the Exodus and God's deliverance. And because God delivered his people and will save his people, someday a Messiah is going to come for the true deliverance. It's all pointing forward to like, something has to happen. Because in the end, we all should be blotted out of God's book. So God somewhat relents, and he says to Moses, go and lead this people away to the place I have spoken to you. 
The place he's talking about there is the promised land, right? The land that he's promised them in the land of Canaan. He's like telling them to go. And so what we're going to see in the next chapter is they're going to leave Mount Sinai. And they're going to start heading back out into the desert again towards the promised land. And he even says an angel's going to go before you. And so it, it leads us to believe as, if, as God went before them before, or as an angel of God went before them before, he's going to do that again. He's going to lead them to where they're supposed to go. Once again, he's going to protect them as his people once again. But it also says the day of, is coming when the consequences of their sin are going to come upon them. And we see that, at least the beginning of that in verse 35, don't we? When the plague comes. These people, if you've been with us through Exodus, right, they, they've obviously seen the plagues. They, they obviously know what they represent, judgment and punishment for sin. And I don't think they would have questioned at all why this plague would have fallen on them, right? They knew what would have come. Now, I'm going to make some assumptions here. I'm just telling you, this is an assumption. It doesn't tell us clearly in the Scripture, but I'm going to make the assumption that this wasn't the, sonic kind of, the same kind of plague that hit Egypt, I'm going to make an assumption that it wasn't deadly as the one that hit in Egypt. You know why I'm saying that? Because in Egypt, we got very specifically what the plagues did, didn't we? We know when they were deadly. We know when they weren't. We know what they did. And also, God just was very specific about 3,000 people being cleared, killed for their sins. So God's been very specific about these things in the past. So I'm making the assumption that this plague might have been awful. It might have been difficult, but the people knew why it was coming. But the assumption I'm making is probably wasn't as deadly or, or deadly. But it made the point to the people that among my people, sin like this is not going to be tolerated and there's going to be consequences. And I want you to understand, church, without Jesus Christ intervening on our behalf, we would have to face the same kind of consequences for our sin, the same kind of judgments. Again, that's why I hold so tightly and so dearly to Romans 8.1. Therefore, if anyone, therefore, because of the things that God has done, because of the gospel that's explained in the first seven chapters of Romans, you are not condemned in Jesus Christ. You are not guilty. We don't have to worry about the same kind of consequences coming like this. Yes, God still disciplines his children because he loves them. Yes, God will allow things to happen. But Jesus took the wrath of God. Jesus took the judgment on the cross. Praise God for that because it's still just as serious today as it was then. Church, this is not an easy passage, right? And if it existed in isolation, it would seem brutal. It would be almost impossible to understand. But do you know what happens right after this as we move into verse, chapter 33 and 34? We see next week that this moment, these things lead to the restoration of the people. It leads to the renewal of the covenant. And it's a big deal. This, the renewal covenant is, is a big deal. It's this awesome moment. And God slowly starts revealing even more of himself to the people and to Moses as he goes through this process. They know their God more clearly. They start to know him more deeply than they did before. It leads to a deeper relationship with God and knowing how to worship him in an even deeper way. But church, is that not so often how it works? Even in our lives now, that, that through our biggest failures, out of the, the hardest things that happen to us, maybe even the hardest things that God allows to happen to us, sometimes even, even having to walk through the really difficult consequences of our most desperate sin, God uses those things to not only redeem us, but to reveal to us his, what his love for us truly looks like. And show us more clearly who he is. Again, I don't know how many conversations I've had with people. I couldn't even count them. That the moment they really started to understand who God was, 
They really started to understand God's love. They understood what it really meant to follow him was out of their biggest failures, their deepest sins, their, the hardest things that ever happened to them. Even in the midst of walking through the consequences of their own actions sometimes is when they really began to understand who their God is. So often that's how it works. Not always, but so often that's how it works. Because in the end, what good is grace and mercy if we don't understand just how incredible, how deep, how unbelievable that grace and mercy is? Church, you want to truly understand the cross? Now, we talk about the cross all the time, right? We talk about the gospel all the time, but you want to truly understand the cross? You want to truly understand why Jesus was sweating blood in the garden? I know a lot of you have considered that before, but like there's so much weight, so much pressure, so much on Jesus that he's sweating blood in the garden and asking his father if there's another way when he knew there wasn't another way. How could that have been? It's because Jesus understood. As I've said before, it wasn't the pain of the cross or the humiliation, which both would have been absolutely terrible and awful. It was that he understood the depth of his Father's holiness in a way that we never could and we won't until heaven. He understood the depth and the depravity of sin. He knew the hideousness of it. He knew his Father's wrath for it. He knew how his Father viewed it. He knew how ugly and treacherous and rebellious it was, yet he took it on himself on that cross. He understood what he was actually going to have to do. As 2 Corinthians 5, he knew that he was going to have to become that thing, become our sin, and take his Father's wrath on that cross. He understood the horror of it, yet he still came. And he still went. And he still humbled himself to the point of death on that cross so that you might be saved. We don't understand the depth, but he did. And he still went. Church, this is not about God not loving you and or loving those people. This tough moment in Exodus isn't God lacking love. It's God loving us enough to let us see how incredibly serious this is so that we might be saved, so that others might be saved, and so that we might give our life to him so Jesus can be the intercession in our life and so that we might actually understand how incredible God's grace and mercy is for us through the cross, through Christ. Yes, your sin is ugly. And yes, it's terrible. And yes, it, it is. We see clearly from the passage, it is deserving of death and hell. Yet God's love for you is more. It's more. His grace for you is bigger. His mercy for you is deeper. And his forgiveness for you is stronger. God knew you God knew your sin, he knew, yet he humbled himself to the shame of death on the cross so that you might be called his child, so that you might not be defined by that sin or that rebellion, so that you might be saved. One more time, church, you cannot understand the depth of that love, the depth of the sacrifice until you understood what it took for you to truly have it. And in Christ, church, you have it. If you're in Christ, you have it. As I said, in Christ, church, you no longer have to fear what the Israelites had to fear. 
In Christ, we are not condemned. God's wrath is no longer on us. But that doesn't mean that our sin is any less serious. But what it does mean is that we have the opportunity to worship Christ and understand Christ and lay our lives on the line for Christ all the more because we understand what it took for him to purchase that freedom on the cross. We just talked about songs. Praise God that we have freedom in Christ. It took this on the cross, carrying all that for you to have that freedom. So feel the weight of that church, not the guilt not the shame, the weight of it. And when we feel the weight of it and we get, take that to the cross, we take that God and we praise him and we thank him, it grows our souls to worship God even more, to love him even more, to give our lives to serve him even more. Or as Romans 12, 1 says, to give our lives as a living sacrifice because of what he has done and what he continues to do. We get to understand. So here's what I want to do. I just want us to take some time to pray. Right, we're going to stand and worship in a minute, but if anybody on the worship team is back there or you're around, come on out. You can start playing if you're ready. And I just want you to take some time to dwell on this, just you, between you and God, and to thank God for who he is. Thank God for what he's done. And take some time to repent of your sin, to lay it at the feet of the cross, to not even know your sin is this serious, it's this big of a deal. We know what it's deserving of, but, but to not make your sin bigger than what Jesus Christ actually accomplished on the cross for you.